Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we receive your invitation in this moment to ask. We pray that you would give us the good things that we need to flourish in your kingdom. Come to seek. We pray that we would find the good things that we need to flourish in your kingdom. We knock on the door of heaven right now and ask that you would give us good things. Most importantly, that you would re-image to our souls your reality as a good father who gives these good gifts. And out of that, would you allow us to, to relearn what it looks like to love others as you love us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have you seen the movie, A Man Called Otto? Some of you guys. So I watched this movie with my family last night. It is a tearjerker. I'll try not to ruin it. I know I do these spoilers sometimes, but it is such a beautiful and yet a sad movie. Tom Hanks is in it. And um, it's sort of about his journey. You know, he's a man who starts the movie living alone. His wife has just died. He's gone through so much suffering. And, uh, and he sort of developed this really judgmental attitude. He basically walks around calling everybody idiots and treating everybody like idiots, sort of the terminology in the movie. And, and he's become just really inward through all of this suffering. And so he sort of cut himself off from the world. And it's, it's a, sort of a movie about, I mean, as somebody who's sort of at midlife, I also see like the, the arc of the movie is also about growing old. And how do you sort of manage your limitations and losses and still continue to find reasons to live. I mean, the movie is all about him trying not to live, and yet life continuing to push on him and people continuing to push on him uh, to move from sort of an inward orientation to an outward life of loving relationships. And so we get to follow his journey of sort of from being this closed off curmudgeonly person to eventually opening himself more and more and finding their real, uh, a real flourishing life. And when I think about sort of the, the core message of that movie, uh, I, I think about the Sermon on the Mount, because I think Jesus is, is warning us about some of those possibilities here in the sermon. The sermon is, is really all about what does it mean to live a flourishing life? Jesus starts off by saying, the kingdom of God is here, back in chapter four. And of course, this is his largest uh, teaching anywhere in the gospels, the largest sort of set of his teachings. And, and he starts it off in chapter five by saying, blessed are you or flourishing are you. And so right at the beginning of the sermon, Jesus is sort of grabbing us by the collar and saying, if you want to know what it lives, if it means to live a good life, here you go. And he begins to unpack this vision of the good life. And there's really sort of two ways to live. And we come to the, the nexus of that in chapter seven, when he says, basically, don't judge so that you won't be judged. There's a way to live that is sort of judgmental and isolated and condemning, or there's a way to live that invites us to see that the truest way to be human is actually to learn to love deeply. And it's really all about relationships. And so as we come to this passage here um, in verses 7 to 12, which has traditionally been a, pa a passage that most people would, uh, would interpret to talk just about prayer, there's a larger context that we need to make sure we don't miss as we think about asking and seeking and knocking. So let's start here with verse seven, and I wanna show you what I'm talking about. Uh, Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Now remember the, the larger context here in verse one and verse two is about our relationships with other people. Do not judge, Jesus said. 
so that you won't be judged, for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure that you use. Now, um, that is, again, just a couple of weeks ago to clarify what Jesus is not saying there and what he is saying, for those who missed that, uh, that teaching, Jesus is not saying that we should never judge or evaluate people's words or actions. It's impossible. We're always making judgments about other people. He's using judge in the sense of condemning or shaming or excluding other people. Don't condemn people, he says, because only God has the wisdom and the vision. Only God can really see into the heart to, in that sort of final, ultimate way, write somebody off or condemn them to judgment. And so he says, just reserve condemnation for God alone. Instead, he says, have the humility to examine yourself. Turn that critical gaze that you, some of us live with, inward and examine yourself before you examine other people. Then he goes on to illustrate this, again, still pressing on relationships with this strange parable about pigs and dogs. <laughs> what does this mean? Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. I mean, what in the world? Like Jesus is talking about don't judging. It's like squirrel, you know, and then he's talking about pigs and dogs. Um, maybe the desert heat's like getting to Jesus. But actually it's all about relationships. If you read later in the Gospel of Matthew, there's another story. The only other story about a pearl in Matthew is in chapter 13. And it's about a man who goes and he discovers this pearl and he sells everything that he has to get this pearl. And Jesus says the pearl is the good news of the kingdom of God, the gospel, the, the truth and the peace and the joy and the good news of God's saving reign and rule coming to this world. That's, that's the pearl. And so this parable about pigs and dogs is commonly misinterpreted to mean, and you maybe have said this before, like when you're in a situation where you're really frustrated or annoyed with somebody and they just don't seem to be like getting it and you're just like, don't cast your pearls before swines. You know, usually they're the swine and, and you're sort of the hero in this story. You're Jesus and they're the pig. Um, and we usually interpret that in a sort of inferior way. That's sort of like the auto syndrome, like everybody else is an idiot and we're sort of smart and they're unworthy or inferior or evil and just don't waste your time, don't waste your energy, don't waste your resources on them because they're just gonna mistreat or misuse or abuse the, the pearl anyways. But that's definitely not the point of what Jesus is saying here. If that's true, then Jesus's entire life and ministry and teaching would have been a waste, right? He would have wasted his pearl on an unworthy humanity. So that would be diametrically opposed to all that Jesus is about. So the problem with pigs and dogs is not that they're worthless, but that they can't digest the pearl, right? Like I'm not a farmer. Uh, this is where I always wish I had Christian on stage. Somebody could tell you about how animals work and function. But here's what I know. If you give them something they can't digest, they will, they will choke on it. It won't, it won't help them. And matter of fact, it might even make them angry to where, like Jesus said, they'll turn and bite you. What he's saying is be careful about pushing on them your opinions, your ideas about what's true, your superiority, your treasures. Be careful that it doesn't choke them. I like the way that Pastor Tim Keller, who just recently passed away, is so sad. One of the, probably the biggest influences in my life in ministry, Pastor Tim in New York, and he, he had this to say about this parable. Love the, love the way he says it. There are people 
you can press the truth on them, you can talk to them about the gospel, you can say, here's what it is, but it just doesn't compute. It's not coming there. And you must, I love this phrase, honor the pace of God in their lives. You must give people the truth at the rate they can bear it. What he's saying is everyone's on their own journey with discipleship in the kingdom of God. So instead of pushing or judging or condemning, or maybe you're not the kind of person that's pushy, maybe when, when you get into that sort of reactive space, you silently judge and you withdraw, right? And sort of do the passive aggressive thing. He's saying, don't do that. Don't push truth on people when they're not ready to receive it. Everybody has a pace and their pace is not your pace. What's important to you may not be what's important to them right now. And so Jesus counters with a relational alternative. Ask, seek, knock. And again, remember, relationship context, not first and foremost about prayer. These three verbs, ask, seek, and knock, rescue us from the power dynamics of shaming evaluations in our relationship with others. And they, they deliver us into the realm of authentic relationships which are all about intimacy and heart-level connection. So now reread these words and these verbs through that lens. It's not wrong to apply them to prayers, we'll see in a moment, but the first context is about our relationships with others. And Jesus, being a master teacher, has in mind here a double entendre, a double meaning for these words. My uh, therapist and sort of spiritual director uh, spiritual father figure has the saying, he always says, how we relate is how we relate. And I think Jesus is saying something similar, like how we relate in the kingdom of God to God and to other people is deeply interconnected. And so there's a, there's a sort of human horizon for this, like a horizontal horizon, and then a vertical horizon for ask, seek, and knock. First, think about it through the lens of human relationships, ask. Instead of domineering, instead of trying to control, instead of trying to push your agenda, what if you, just stay with me here, what if you just requested what you needed? I right, we come to relationships with other people with these real desperate, urgent needs, right? We've just walked through a diagnosis. We have a longing that's been frustrated. We're in a crisis or we're experiencing some sort of a void or an absence in our uh, internal life, we, we're walking through a divorce or a relational cutoff, and we come to people and it's just like such desperation. I need this. I need you to change. I need you to show up for me. I need you to love me and support me. I need you to help me. I need money. I need you to become a Christian. Like what, whatever it is, there's just an energy to that request. There's a desperation. And Jesus says, just like in any healthy relationship, instead of coercing, Instead of shaming, instead of judging, what if you just tried asking simply and honestly for what you need? He says, seek, right? Seeking's another relational word. It's often used of seeking God's face, of seeking intimacy with God. What Jesus is saying is we come to others out of need, we ask, but what we're really seeking oftentimes and what we often discover in our asking, if we do it the right way, is the gift of safe and trusting relationships. Seek relationships. And then he says, knock, right? Knocking on a door implies an invitation both into someone's heart and consequently into their home and brings us into this rich sort of imagery in the Bible of table fellowship, right? To dine with somebody in the ancient world 
was infinitely more than just sharing a meal or refueling your, you know, skin suit, like whatever we talk about, like our bodies in such like, you know, industrial ways. Um, it was actually a public affirmation of, a, of someone's character. To eat with them is to receive them as a, as a human being, to give them dignity. It's one of the deepest forms of intimacy. It's been said uh, by one theologian that Jesus, one of, the, one of the reasons Jesus died was because of who he ate dinner with. And so Jesus says, knock. All of this to say, ask, seek, and knock in this relational matrix is to say that the way to influence others in the kingdom of God and toward kingdom purposes is by resisting the temptation to coerce or manipulate or force our opinions or our ways onto them and to honor the nature of our relationship, our mutuality, to honor their dignity, to honor their agency, to honor them by just asking and seeking and knocking. And not just once or twice. Well, I asked them and they didn't change. The, the, the verb tense here is one we don't really have an equivalent for uh, in English, but it comes out really here in this translation in the Christian standard. Uh, it implies ongoing, persistent action. A good translation would be keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. It's this posture of persistent begging, which is why I think we don't like to do it. I, I don't like to be in a position of begging. I don't like to be in a position of need. I don't like to have to ask, right? Because there's a certain vulnerability to having to ask other people for things. There's an embarrassment and a shame and a humiliation to having to ask. It's much easier, like parents, isn't it easier to just tell your kid to be quiet and do what you say than it is to ask for something? It's easier to do that with your coworkers. It's easier to do it with your subordinates at work or whatever. And, and this sounds crazy, like Jesus is so out of touch with how the world works. The world works on power and domination and control and coercion. And yet Jesus says, that's not my way. So what do you do when you ask and you don't get what you want? What's the other alternative? If you can't force, what, where do we go? And that's where I think Jesus brings us into the second relational context, one that's greater and deeper and more trustworthy than the fickleness and the whims of human relationships. Look at verse nine. This is where we enter the realm of prayer. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? If you feel the impossible weight of not coercing people towards kingdom purposes, but simply standing before them with your requests and seeking a relationship. If that feels impossible, Jesus says it should. The only way that it's possible to live this way, the way of non-judgmental living with others, and the only way we'll influence others towards kingdom realities in a way that lasts and is sustainable, right? Because if I control you, that's temporary, right? But, but eventually, all of you parents know, your kids leave the house and then they make choices for themselves and it often backfires. So it's a temporary way to get what you want. But if you wanna influence others toward kingdom realities in a way that lasts, Jesus says the only way through it is a deep relationship of prayerful trust with your heavenly father. What begins as an urgent request, an urgent need in the context of messy relationships becomes an invitation. And this is, this is the deeper invitation here in this passage, an invitation to a more intimate relationship with a good heavenly father. To illustrate this reality, Jesus uses an example that we're all familiar with, right? A parent-child 
dynamic, whether you're a parent, all of us have had parents, and I don't know about you parents, but I have four children. They're in this room, and uh, especially when they were little, there were a lot of, there was a lot of asking going on, usually in the form of blood-curdling screaming in the middle of the night, or uh, just the right temper tantrum when they knew we couldn't do anything in the middle of Target in broad daylight. You know, these requests just coming all the time, hundreds, thousands of requests, very urgent. And it's like, if you don't do this right now, my life is going to be over kind of requests. And as a good parent, right, most of the time when you're in a healthy space um, and you've had a little bit of sleep, you meet those cries with meeting of the needs, right? You give them the milk that they ask for, you change their dirty diaper, you make them a sandwich, you buy them that slushy at Target so that we can all enjoy that experience of shopping together. Here's the point. When our kids cry out for help, they're expressing a need. But, but underneath that expressing of a need is really the primal invitation for relationship. What they're really asking is, are you going to care for me? Is anybody going to be there for me? Do you see me? Will you love me? Can I trust you to be there for me? That's the, the fundamental question and sort of like developmental tasks that, that kids are, are pursuing at, as a, at a young age. As a child experiences over time that relational safety net, they're able to wait a little bit longer and a little bit longer. And yes, young parents, a little bit longer. It will get to the point where they are teenagers. And then they stop asking you for anything. Then you have to guess at what they're asking you with all kinds of verbal games. Like, no, I'm good, which usually means my life's on fire. I actually need something from you. So there's all sort of, it changes, it shifts. So my kids ask me for something now as teenagers, I'm like, yeah, yes, yeah, how, can, how can I do it? I, I, want, to, I want to be there. That, that, they're seeking intimacy. They're able to wait and they're able to manage those unmet needs and eventually they move out into the world with a healthy sense of attachment and they're able to build trusting relationships with others because they had parents who eventually they knew would come for them. Now, if that's true, and I realize for some of us that wasn't true growing up and so there's some work to do here. But if that's true in general, then Jesus says, imagine how much more true that is of God. That phrase, how much more, that we see here is a rabbinical teaching device that was used to compare a lesser reality to a greater. And so Jesus is saying, if it's true that in general, children can trust their mostly flawed and inconsistent parents to provide for their needs, how much more can you trust your heavenly father to give you what's really good and what's really necessary for a flourishing life? All we have to do, Jesus says, is ask, and seek and knock. This is an invitation to pray, right? To pray honestly, persistently, and trustingly. We have a heavenly father who, who longs to commune with us, who longs to have fellowship with us, table fellowship, right? And I, I love this painting here. It gives you sort of like a visual imagery for what's going on in this invitation to prayer. It's by a Russian painter in the 15th century, Andrei Rublev, and I'm sure I just butcher his last name, uh, but it's called the Trinity. And it pictures Father, Son, and Spirit at the table together, enjoying relationship with each other, relaxing in a community of love with one another. And so as you picture this invitation from God to us, imagine yourself pulling up a chair at this table with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being invited into a relaxing environment of love and kindness and a Father who's eager to meet your needs. Now keep that image 
in your mind because this is what the heart of prayer is all about. God promises to give us good things, the good things that we need for life in the kingdom with others, things like humility and compassion and love and grace and forgiveness, right? This is, again, all about relationships, and God wants to give us all that we need to be able to live into this vision of being a disciple. He wants to give us the things that we can't do in our own strength. When we feel we're at our wit's end, when we feel nothing but judgment and reactivity and anxiety rising in us, he says, hey, would you just stop? Would you pray? And would you trust me that I'm going to give you what you need to live as a disciple? Would you just make that the pattern of your life? And just know that I'm a good father. I see you. You don't have to freak out. You don't have to be like a baby screaming who thinks their parents aren't coming for them. I'm coming for you. And I will give you what you need. That's the promise that is like this golden thread that runs throughout Jesus' kingdom manifesto in the Sermon on the Mount. God is a father. And he's present. And he cares for you. And he's going to take care of you. So don't freak out. That's basically what Jesus is saying in chapter 6 and 7. He beautifully stitches together God's vision of a, of a new and radical kingdom way of life with God's relentless commitment to abundantly provide for his beloved children. I mean, there's a lot of parallels here in 7, 7 through 11. If you go back to chapter 6, verses 19 to 34, he's doing the same exact thing there with regard to wealth and possessions. Jesus tells his disciples, don't be possessive, just like he says, don't judge. Don't be possessive with your stuff, with your wealth. Don't be anxious about your bodies, your clothing, what you're going to wear. And then he illustrates it with a couple of parables, and then he gives an encouragement. What is the encouragement? Pull up to the table and relax, because your heavenly Father will take care of you, just like he does the lilies and the birds. Calm down. Go out for a walk. I, I, I've taken to doing this literally. Like, usually on Wednesdays and Fridays, I try to have like an extended prayer walk time and just walk down Oxford and I just want to slow down my life and my body and my racing mind and my internal world that's so chaotic and just literally pay attention and say, God, if you are doing that for these birds and these flowers, won't you do that for me? And it just becomes an opportunity for prayer. That's what he's doing here with his disciples over and over and over again. You can trust your heavenly father. You don't have to grasp. You don't have to clutch. You don't have to be anxious. Do you see it? So bringing this full circle, and there's a lot more that we could say here about prayer, but because Miles did such a great job in chapter six with his teaching on prayer, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. Uh, we don't have time to get there and do that, but um, what he's saying is, again, in our relationship with others, we don't have to control, we don't have to manipulate, we don't have to drive, we don't have to shame or scheme. Just simply ask for what you want, seek a relationship, knock on the door of their heart to influence them, and when that fails, when you don't get what you want, don't resort to coercion, but rather hold them before God in prayer. Hold your own needs for God, uh, your own needs before God in prayer. And he will give you the intimacy of his presence, which is what you really need to flourish while you wait. You need to know that God is there and that he's not giving up on you. I love the way that Dallas Willard says it. Instead of harassing those near us with our judgments and our treasures... We stand before them with our helpless requests while simultaneously standing before the wise and the mighty king with our requests for them. Can you imagine how much different your prayer life would look, how this could transform your prayer life 
if instead of praying about things that you should be praying about or things you didn't really care about or abstract truths about God or whatever, which for many of us has led us to a dead end with our prayers, if you actually prayed about the real things going on in your relationships, like the real joy and the real pain and suffering of trying to live this way with other people, like God, this person, it's Monday morning and I'm going back to my workplace, whether that's virtual or in person, this person annoys me. And I just need to, I need, I need to let loose for a little bit and let you know how they're annoying me. Or, hey, you know what? I, my kid is just not doing what I want them to do right now and they're struggling and God, I just, I need to unburden myself. Instead of being tempted to just force them or yell at them or scream at them or shame them, God, I just need you to know how I'm feeling right now. Right? There's some real emotional distance between me and my wife or husband. And, and I just don't know if I can do it today. God, I'm so tempted right now to just numb out and go get drunk and wasted. And God, I just, I need to bring this before you right now. I need you to hold me and I'm gonna hold these things in prayer. Can you imagine if you spent more time talking to God rather than talking at and down to others, how it might change the nature of your relationships with those closest to you? I mean, that's the invitation of prayer. So Jesus wraps all this up here in verse 12 with sort of the end of all of this. What is the, what is the end of this life of prayer? What is the end of this asking and, and this way of being in our relationships? It's a very simple way to close his, his uh, teaching section here, but it's profound. It's something that we've all probably heard before. But man, how hard is it to live this out? He says, therefore, concluding, summarizing, bringing together all that he's just said in the Sermon on the Mount, therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them, for this is the law and prophets. Therefore, again, a rhetorical, uh, rhetorical marker that Jesus is summarizing and applying what he's just said. He's summarizing on a couple levels, one verses one through 12. He's saying in light of what I just said, right? What did he just say in verse 11? Your father is good. If he gives good gifts to those who ask him, therefore... You are to give good gifts to others. You are to be generous towards others as your father has been generous towards you. As you enjoy the, the father's generosity, now turn around and extend that to others. So he's sort of summarizing that. But he's also in another level summarizing and bringing to a close this entire section of 14 teachings on this, in the Sermon on the Mount. They take us back to chapter five, verse 17. Remember this whole sec section of teaching started with what does it look like to live out a righteousness, a wholeness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees? The holiest people, right, of that day, the most learned Bible scholars, what does it look like to have a righteousness that's greater than theirs? And so he bookends the beginning of that and the ending of that with this uh, phrase, the law and the prophets. Notice both sections, I'll throw it up on the screen begin and end by mentioning the law and the prophets. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets but to fulfill them. And then he quotes this and then says, this is the law and the prophets. Literally, this is the essence of the law and the prophets. This is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And all things, in all of your life, your relationships, your stuff, everything, your heart, your soul, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. And this word others in the Greek Jesus could have chosen the word Adelphoi, which would have meant brothers, like people, brothers and sisters, people like you, people who think like you, talk like you, share your convictions and values. 
but he uses instead the broader word anthropoi, which means all of humanity without qualification. Remember, we talked about this with loving our enemies. Nobody is outside the scope of this invitation. Jesus says, if you want to distill the entire message of the Bible, what, what, what's the basic message of the Bible? Like some of us are here, maybe you're not even a Christian, and you're like, the Bible's so confusing, I don't get it. There's so much going on, and there's so, stuff that doesn't make sense to me or that seems oppressive and backwards. What, what's the essence of, of the Bible in a sentence, in a tweet, in a post? Jesus says one of the ways we can come to that answer is through what's been called the golden rule. In any relationship, in any, uh, any arena of life, before you react, before you respond, stop. Think about, wish, imagine, right? So much of our failure to love is a failure of imagination. Imagine how you'd want to be treated and then find a creative way to initiate something similar towards the other person. That's it. That's his distillation of the law, of the Bible. It's a pithier way of saying what he goes on to say in answer to a similar question in Matthew 23, where one of the experts in the law asks this question to test Jesus, which command in the law is the greatest? And of course, Jesus responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, as God has done to you. And this is picked up and restated by Jesus' disciples throughout the New Testament. I think of Romans 13, when people are fighting about food, still fighting about food here. Um, what can we eat? What can we not eat? Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves, Paul says, and loves another has fulfilled the law, the Torah. James 2.8, fighting over class, fighting over favoritism, who gets to sit where, who do we value? Who do we, who do we treat as special in our services? And he says this, indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbors yourself, you are doing well. Relation, our relationship with God and our relationship with others is deeply connected. You can't say you love God and then treat others in a way that's different than God has treated you in Christ. That's what he's saying. And if you wanna know the measure of your love, don't look at how many times you fasted this month. Don't look at how many, how many hours you spent in prayer. Don't look at you know, how sweet and restful and restorative your Sabbath was or whatever. Don't look at your church attendance. The acid test for your love for God, if you wanna measure the depth and the health of your communion with God, Jesus says, just look at how you treat others, right? And that's why in the East, in Eastern Christianity, the Orthodox tradition, they call this sort of embodied love, this neighbor love, an icon, because it's a window through which we see and experience God's love. And Jesus isn't alone in laying out a rule for life, lest it sounds harsh. We all have a version of a rule for life that we live by. The question is, what kind of person is it creating us to be? There were all kinds of rules operating in Jesus's day. Throughout history, there've been competing ideas about what it means to, what constitutes the good life. Um, there's alternative rules. We have them still today. There's the wooden rule, right? Do unto others what they've done to you. That's how some of us live our life. This is the most fundamental, basic uh, sort of ethics, right? This is basically the lowest level of maturity. It's how children 
treat one another. You hit me, I'm gonna hit you back. You say something nice to me, I'll say something nice to you back. It could be positive or negative. The sad reality is that many of us never transcend the wooden rule. We never grow out of it. Still doing it as adults, we just have more sophisticated ways to cover it up with money and technology. There's the iron rule. Do to others what you can do to them. This is the law of power and force. It's just pure social Darwinism. It operates with a scarcity mindset. The, the, sort of the contemporary men's movement that's being put before us as guys operates on this principle, dominate others, get yours before someone else does. There's the civil rule. Don't do to others what you wouldn't, done to you, wouldn't want done to you. That's sort of a negative version, an inverted version of the golden rule. There's ancient versions of this going back in both the Eastern and Western sort of philosophical traditions. There's a Jewish version of this. Most famously, Rabbi Hillel said, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. There's a version of this uh, from Confucius and Taoism and Muhammad and Islam, Buddhism, basically the Stoics. If you could distill this down, it's essentially do no harm, right? We've put a nice, nice modern spin in our sort of secular cultural moment. Do whatever you want as long as you don't harm anybody. That's the basic ethic of our day. Now, I want to say this is a huge advancement over previous uh, ethics. It's way better than the wooden law or the iron law, but it's not enough. It tells you what not to do, but doesn't tell you what to do. It doesn't get you to love. It doesn't get you to justice. It definitely doesn't get you to human rights. And if you saw that video that went viral a couple years ago about the Canadian father who walked into a Starbucks and there was a guy vaping and like blowing smoke on his three-year-old and he just simply asked, would you not do that? And the guy stabbed him uh, and basically murdered him right in front of his three-year-old while everybody had their cameras and their phones out videotaping it and commenting on it and posting it. Nobody intervened. That's a good example of the silver rule. I didn't, I didn't do it. That's not, that's not my business. See, it doesn't, it doesn't give us to love. Love would have... Love intervenes, love lays down its life. Love does, in the words of Jesus. And another recent one that I came across, I'd never heard of this one before, the platinum rule. So like a lot of people are kind of down on the golden rule because they'd say, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Like everybody has different needs. So don't force your needs on other people. And many of us have like a really weird distorted self-image. And so we, we sort of operate at a level of self-contempt that if we then treat others the way we treat ourselves, it could actually be dangerous to other people. And so we should only give, the platinum rule is we should only give others what they want, what they prefer, and what they perceive themselves to need. What's interesting about that is, on the one hand, it's, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the golden rule. Jesus is actually in the golden rule here saying, as God has treated you, what you want for yourself, then go treat others as God has treated you. That's what the golden rule actually means. So it's a, it's, it's a misunderstanding there, but it also breaks down again. It's not enough. What if, what if what somebody else wants is actually harmful to themselves or to other people? What if what they want is evil? What if they don't even know what they want? Have you ever asked somebody, what do you want? And they're like, I don't know. Or they'll tell you something, but what they really want is the opposite of what they tell you. I mean, this, this makes no sense to me. It's a chaotic rule. It fails the test of love and ultimately can become a form of appeasement, not real love. And that's what makes Jesus so unique is that he's the first that we know of in history to state this ethical vision positively and to ground his ethical vision in a metaphysical source, the love of God 
and a vision for the world, God's vision for human flourishing as we see it in the life and the teachings and the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so this is more than a golden rule. I love the way that one Testament scholar, he calls this a golden vision. It's a golden vision for an entirely different way of life in the kingdom of God. This is the way of agape love, right? It's not sentimental. It's not cheap. It's not sort of what we would call love in our cultural moment, which is sort of tolerance. You do you and I'll do me and let's just sort of leave each other alone as long as we don't harm anybody. This is not self-love here. This is not just about how I feel. He doesn't say, do unto, feel unto others as they would feel unto you. This is agape love. It's a deep love that's rooted in God's love towards us. It's holistic. It loves them holistically. It's creative. It's action-oriented. And it's utterly others-focused. It's essentially just learning to extend the boundaries of God's love towards us to other people, right? It's, it's looking inside and saying, how have I experienced God's love towards me in Jesus Christ? How have I experienced God's love and the Holy Spirit being poured out on me? And man, what would it look like if that was extended to my neighbor? What if that was extended to my children? What if that was extended to my enemies? So as we go to communion here, we wrap up. I just want us to consider what our invitation might be in the spirit here today. Again, it's a very simple teaching, but very profound to live it out. And I think that I, I just want us to stop and imagine what it could look like for us to live this in our relationships with other people. Right? I, I want you to think this week about times that you've not lived this way. And I want you to think about your relationships, like your real relation. Like, would you just take a moment and call to mind a coworker, a parent, a step-parent, a sibling, an enemy, a child, a young adult, a roommate, somebody that you have difficulty loving and, and just replay in your mind for a moment that moment when you screamed at them, that moment when you reacted, maybe not externally, but internally at least, when you judge them, when you condemn them, when you failed to pray for them, you failed to act in a loving way. And what would it look like for us this week to live differently, right? Because you're gonna be confronted with those same opportunities this week. We, we heard Nate talk about this last week. Jesus has put you where you are and he's created good works for you to walk in, people for you to relate to, places you're gonna go, people you're gonna see, conversations you're gonna have, and you're gonna have an opportunity in that moment to make a choice to be the embodied representation of the kingdom of God or not. And so when you're tempted to react, when you're tempted to respond in anxiety or anger or out of, out of this deep emptiness and shame and then shame them, I think Jesus' invitation to us is just to stop and to listen to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit inside of you. And just to pause for a moment to reflect, maybe in the morning before you go out into your day and you look out at your calendar or in the middle of the day or in the evening as you're looking back on your day and preparing for the next day, just to stop and say, God, would you open my eyes to see all the ways that you have been a good father to me, you've been generous to me. You have extended mercy to me when I didn't deserve it, forgiveness to me, compassion to me. You have poured out your Holy Spirit on me. You have been such a good father. Our 
Our eyes, the eyes of our heart are so exquisitely attuned to all the bad and negative things in our lives that we just miss so often the ways that God is being so generous to us. And I think we live oftentimes in our relationships out of that deep shame because we can't see the goodness and the beauty. And so, man, what an opportunity to listen to ourselves. God, how, how Holy Spirit, would you just come and show me the ways that you've been good to me and would you just help me extend that kind of hospitality? to the people I'm gonna come in contact with this week. I mean, it sounds so simple, but it's so hard, right? Because when you get hooked emotionally and you get into that space, you're not thinking like that. And so pause, be still. God, in this moment, I wanna remember, I am a beloved child of God. I have nothing to fear, no one to impress. I am simply living as your child in this moment. Would you just slow things down inside of me? Would you help me to remember how good you've been to me? And then would you help me to imagine Get outside of myself. Take this person's perspective and imagine what's underneath the urgency of this request or this behavior that's driving me crazy. Maybe there's some wounding there. Maybe there's a, a, a need there, but I can't even see that need because I'm so focused on my own response to it. But God, help me to see what's underneath. What do they want? What do they need? What's their story? How can I serve them? How could I be Jesus to them right now. And then, God, would you just help me to take a step in that direction in a creative, surprising, imaginative way right now? And maybe it's just, don't say anything. <laughs> maybe it's finding a way to serve. Maybe it's just pausing to say, hey, you know what? Can I just bless you right now? Can I pray for you? I don't know. But it's beginning to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit in us, learning to ask the question, how would I want to be loved? How would I want to be cared for? and then trying to extend that to other people. And, and I would just say, at least for myself, I'm not very good at listening to what's happening inside of me. It, that even sounds selfish, right? Like a form of self-love or whatever. But that's what Jesus says. Imagine what you would want, and then, so I have to get in touch with what I need. I have to get in touch with what God's doing in me first before I can then turn around and love you. I love the way the author Scott McKnight says uh, what he says about this passage. He says, if you listen to yourself in all of life, you will be led out of yourself into a life of loving others. And I think that's what Jesus is calling us to do, to listen to what he's doing in our lives so that we can then begin to imagine and humanize those around us and learn how to respond with the love that God's giving us towards them. Okay, that's it. That's the simple practice for this week. And so we're gonna take a few minutes to come to communion. We're just gonna confess all the ways that we failed to live that way, right? We're going to confess our need for God. We're going to come and be reminded that Jesus has done everything for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Jesus lived the Sermon on the Mount in his life. He loved God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and he loved his neighbor as himself. And he lived out this deep communion with his father that enabled him to sacrificially give his life away. And we are here. We are here as disciples because Jesus obeyed his own rule. And he laid down his life for the good of other people. And so we come into the space to sort of renew our trust in Jesus, to come back to Jesus and say, hey, here's all the ways that I've failed. <laughs> here's all the ways that I've been judgmental. Here's all the ways that I've, I've been hateful. Here's all the ways I've murdered my brother in my heart. Here's all the ways that I've lusted after other people. Here's all the, I mean, all the things he's talking about in the sermon. I haven't loved my enemies. I've despised them. I'm resentful towards them. So we come again and we just say, God, open me again to the work of your Holy Spirit. Heal me. Renew my trust. Help me to live differently this week by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's pray together.
we'll come to communion. And then uh, the way we practice here communion, we have stations at the front, stations in the back. We'll have bread and wine here at the front. We'll have a table with grape juice and wine, uh, grape juice and um, gluten-free in the back. And you just take a moment to confess your sins. We'll give it, I'll give you a prayer to start, a prayer of confession. And then you come as the Spirit leads. So let me just pray over us. Pray that God would work in us as we ask and seek and knock, as we seek him together. Father, we come to you right now and we ask that you would do work in our hearts. Would you do work in our imagination? Would you help us to see all the ways that you are extending goodness and kindness to us in the midst of the brokenness and the woundedness of the evil that many of us have experienced, that's robbed us of intimacy with you, that robs us of trust and the ability to be vulnerable with other people, that puts us in this vigilant state, always scanning the environment, looking for threats, looking for ways that we can protect ourselves. And it, and it forms us. It forms us into a people who don't love well. So God, forgive us of all the ways that we have a hard time just loving others as you've loved us. Jesus, would you just give us a powerful encounter? Holy Spirit, come and heal our hearts, heal our souls, heal, heal our bodies, heal our minds. Thank you, Jesus, that you lived the life that we couldn't live, that you died the death that we should have died, and that you've come to restore and make all things new. And that starts right here at the table as we come, and you take this bread, and you take this cup, and you make it so much more. You make it just a tangible reminder of your presence with us and for us. So would you just burn that image of you as a loving father who has provided all that we need to flourish in the kingdom of God. Would you burn that into our souls and our imagination right now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.